0: Welcome to Putong Our Heritage
1: Talks 2023. In October 1847, Auckland was rocked by a horrific crime. A man, woman and child were murdered in their beds on the North Shore. Were Māori rebels to blame or was the true criminal closer to home? joint journalist, author and North Shore resident Sarah Owl on her hunt for the killer. Her journey sheds light on race and gender, relations, criminality, drunkenness and the justice system in early colonial New Zealand.
0: Well thank you very much for uh, for coming along today and for joining us online for this talk about this book project I've been working on about a rather grisly little murder but it's not really about murders I'll talk about, it's about a lot of other things about colonial Auckland, about the new colonial society in the years not long after the signing of Treaty of Waitangi. Uh, thank you very much for that introduction. It was interesting you mentioned David Varon and his talk, and I was the publisher at Random House when we published the North Shore History. I worked with David on that, so um, that's a topic quite close to my heart. As you said in the introduction, I've lived on the North Shore all my life, originally in Belmont and now I live in Castor Bay, and so uh, one of the attractions of, of writing this story was it's how something that happened just down the road uh, and is something really close to home. So you've heard a little bit about me. So basically, I, uh, I work as a freelance writer and publisher now. I uh, like to write about history. It's one of my passions, New Zealand history in particular. And uh, and I also work in publishing in, in the publishing industry, making other people's books. So editing, proofreading, production management as well. But I do love to write. So today I'm going to talk about The Snow Murders, which is a book that I'm in the process of writing. I've got a pretty solid first draft that needs some work, but I've done a lot of research and, and sort of put the story together, and hopefully that will, uh, that will get published. I did have uh, a contract with a publisher, which has unfortunately been withdrawn due to difficulties in the publishing industry, so I'm going to try and find someone else to publish it. We'll have to see how that goes. So it's about, some, it's about a murder. It's about the investigation that followed which resulted in one man being hung for a crime, but actually left us with a lot of unanswered questions about what actually happened. So if you're ever walking along the Devonport waterfront on a nice sunny day or a windy day or a bit of both, you might see as you walk along actually from the Devonport Library, walking along towards the Yacht Club, there's this innocuous-looking plaque here that sits on on the edge of the waterfront. I think a lot of people walk past it without really noticing it. I know, I think my dog probably had a wee on it. I'm pretty sure that that happens with lots of people. But it actually is the site of not only a crime but also an execution. So what it says is, execution site. This is the site of the murder of Lieutenant Snow and his family in 1848 and the subsequent public execution of the murderer. Now, actually, in fact, the date is wrong because the murder happened in 1847, the execution was in 1848, but you get the idea. So Walking along, if you have something of an inquiring mind, you might think, Oh, I wonder what happened there. You know, this it's, I think, murder is not something that really happens in Devonport. It's a pretty genteel kind of place, pretty well heeled. You know, when I was growing up, it was full of houses that were being done up, uh, old villas that were being done up by the, the parents of my friends, and now it's a pretty well heeled, uh, polished kind of place. Not the kind of place you'd expect a, a grisly murder to occur. So this sto- the story of the snow murder, as I said, it's the story of a murder, but not just the story of a murder. It's about an infant colony, it's about race relations, it's about gender relations, and it's about the application of justice and the development of the justice system in New Zealand. What I want to portray is the reality of life at the edge of the empire. we Certainly when I was brought up and what we were taught at school was we were taught about these brave colonists who came out here and they were industrious and they had their cows and the women worked hard and everything was very clean and if you go somewhere like the Howitt Colonial Village or Motat, you see this nice village. In actual fact, you know the city, especially Auckland, was unplanned, dirty, chaotic, full of drunks, um, violent. So much of the, the seething stuff going on under the surface which I really wanted to bring to the forefront and try and paint a different portrait of what our history was actually like. So I guess my inspiration for writing the story was, was seeing this plaque, doing some research. I'm quite interested in, in tr- crime and true crime. It's a very popular subject at the moment with podcasts and things. And i am enjoyed looking at the idea of, you know, what's, a, what's something that had happened in New Zealand that could build a story about? And when I discovered there was one just down the road, I'm like, this, this is me. Because what's been really interesting for me is trying to imagine what Auckland was like at that time, what Devonport was like at that time. So I got researching and found out all sorts of interesting stuff, which I will talk about as well. So this murder happened not long after, in, the, in real terms, not very long after the, the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. It's only seven years. It's not long at all. It's still a very unsettled and uncertain period where people don't really know how the application of a colony is, is actually going to work. And it's also about 10 or 12 years before the country actually slides back into war, having also been in war in 1845 as well. So it's a, it's... It's not this happy sunny colonial period where everyone's just out there milking the cows in the sunshine. It's quite a dark and unsettled time and that those aspects come into the story. So we'll start off talking a little bit about the actual murder and what actually happened and, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about some of the issues around it. I, I had a lot of fun make, putting together the images for this presentation because there are so many gorgeous images of, of early colonial Auckland and they were a really big resource for me at the time. This one actually comes from National Library of Australia but it's looking from here's my pointer. Looking from uh, sort of the ridge where, where Ponsonby is now, or uh, K road actually, it's now looking down upon this main bay here, which is what they call the commercial bay, uh, where a lot of the shops and, and businesses were. Over this hill over here, there was what they call official bay, where all the I the, uh, was use the word, you know, like a, the administrators of the colony, the upper classes lived over here. Around the side was Freeman's Bay, where, pe- where people were, were living. The, the, the working classes were living. This bit here was called Smale's Point, um, and some of our action takes place there. So in Commercial Bay, now this, this rise here, we still see part of that hill going over to where the motorway comes out into Parnell, but there was also this, this Point Britomart, which is no longer there. We talk about where we have the Britomart bus station and Exchange now uh, train station. That hill was taken away eventually, but at this time, uh, in the early years, uh, after the signing of the treaty, there was a big uh, military camp up on this hill called Fort Britomart, Looking across also to the north shore, we see the two hills. There's actually another little hill uh, here we see in some of the other images, which has since been quarried away, looking out towards Rangatoto. The the perspective in this is obviously a little skewed, but looking towards Rangatoto, And then I've been looking at this here and trying to think, I said to my husband, I think that's either Moeho at the end of the Coromandel, or it could be the Mount Hobson on the top of the Great Barrier. But kind of cool to think, be up on the hill looking down across this vista. I was looking out at the city today, driving over here and looking at this Uh, You know, Auckland's reasonably low-lying with this giant, gigantic sky above it, what it must have been like, sort of a a ferny wasteland. Auckland, the Tamaki Makaurau area, was largely depopulated during the Musket Wars, and so when uh, they set up the first capital here in the 1840s, there were only a couple of Maori settlements, at Orake, some on the North Shore, but it was largely depopulated, sort of a wasteland of fern, uh, not gardens or anything, so it must have been a pretty... Fascinating place to climb up that hill and look out over this vast harbour, looking out towards the islands. So on the night of Friday, October the 22nd, 1847, there was a uh, a naval ship in the harbour. Uh, There was Because there had been war in the north um, and there were lots of troops stationed in New Zealand, there was a a Royal Naval Ship situated here all the time. The naval base was sort of where the naval base is now, although slightly more towards sort of where the ferry terminal is on the north shore. There's like a sand spit that sticks out there and they built a stores depot. Uh, on that side where they kept uh, gunpowder and a magazine, but also naval food and other equipment and stores. And on over that side of the harbour, it's a little bit deeper, not right there by Devonport, but sort of up by where the naval base is now, it's a little bit deeper. Over this side of the harbour, especially in the bay here, it's quite shallow, quite muddy. That's the area that will eventually get reclaimed. And so the naval ship stayed sort of on the north shore side where there was a bit more water. So the ship called Dido was in port. It had a watch uh, on overnight. And someone noticed there was a fire over on the north shore, over towards where the stores depot was. And they were a bit concerned because that's where the gunpowder was kept. There, might be, there was, might be an explosion or someone had set fire to the gunpowder store. And so they got together a little boat. This is about just after midnight, so one, two o'clock in the morning. Got together some fellows off the boat and rowed ashore uh, to try and see what was going on. Significantly, as they rowed ashore, one of the things we know from the inquest and the, and the court reports is that there were some Māori canoes that were rowing away from the bay at that time, but the sailors didn't think much of that at the time. Māori might have been fishing, night fishing, or there's a fishing settlement down by uh, Mangoika north head. They rowed ashore to where they could see the fire. And when they got ashore, they realised that the stores depot wasn't on fire, but just inland from there, the house that the, uh, the man who was appointed to look after the stores depot lived in with his family was, was what was on fire. And so they ran up there and found the house almost destroyed and it wasn't until they put the fire out that they discovered that uh, the bodies of Lieutenant Snow, his wife Hannah, and his six-year-old daughter Mary were in, in the ashes and they were just had been destroyed in the fire. So you imagine it's dark, you're on the North Shore, which is basically a wilderness, there's no one else around. They, found, they ran to find the two closest people, who was a guy called Thomas Duda, who was the signalman, he ran the flag on top of North Head, and another guy called Thomas Oliver, who lived nearby as a stockman. They ran down. They said they hadn't seen snow. They ran down to the house. The first, Interesting enough, the first thing that the naval officers did when they discovered that there had been this murder is they rounded up all the Maori people who were in the area and took them back to the ship and made them sit on the deck of the ship all night because their first reaction was, oh, we're under attack. We're being attacked by Maori and this, this outlying settlement. I'll explain a little bit about why they would have thought that in a minute, but that's the first thing that they did. They had no idea what had happened. The house had burned down. These people had been, had been killed. So the snows... I think it's important to give them their names. You quite often, when you read about the case or you see the plaque, it often just talks about Lieutenant Snow. Uh, it doesn't talk about his wife, his child. He actually had two children. His other daughter, who was slightly older, was away at school on the other side of the harbour, so she wasn't in the house uh, when the murders were committed. That's possible well, It's probable that she would have been murdered as well if she had been there. Uh, It's interesting, even Tiara doesn't use the names of the female victims. Uh, It only says Lieutenant Snow, his wife and his daughter, so I think it's really important to name them. One of the frustrations of researching the project is how little information there is about the women in this story that are uh, such major players, but uh, there's so little information about them. So Robert Snow had come here. um, He'd originally been in the British Navy. He'd been sent to Australia sort of as a naval administrator. He'd married in Australia, and then he'd come to New Zealand Uh, to work for the government here. So he was a naval man, sort of semi-retired, he was a bit older, probably in his 50s, sort of semi-retired on half pay, still working for the Navy, but living over on the shore looking after the stores. The other thing that's interesting is that there are no, because of the time in which this happened, there are no photographs of anyone involved. I can't show you what they look like. There's very little description. It's a time when photography was in its infancy and certainly wouldn't have been used by some of the players that we're talking about here, some of the criminals and just wouldn't have been people who would have had their photograph taken. So we have no images of the snows. We don't know what they looked like. And unfortunately, also, even their grave is is missing because they were buried in the Simon Street Cemetery, which then had a motorway built through it. And so their graves were among those that were moved. Their remains disinterred, and who knows where they ended up. So there's very little left of them, unfortunately, apart from the name. So I'll tell you a little bit about what Auckland was like at that time. Because it's one of the things that's really interested me while I've been researching this. So as I talked before about Auckland, I talked about those three bays and the differences between them. That just the shoddiness of the place, that it was dirty and rough. It didn't have properly formed roads, didn't have a sewerage system. It stank. Someone described it as being worse than Deptford, which is like a navy base on the on the Thames. There were there was a government house that had been built from a kit set that sat up on the hill. We'll see a picture of that soon. Um, but even the officials that lived in the, in the town had to make do with what they could. Some of them built little cottages, raupo cottages. There were no buildings made of stone. They, one of the officials had 10 children, and so the only place they could find that was big enough for him to live in was a building that used to be a pub, and it had the words tap room still visible above the front door. There were about 3,000 Pākehā living in Auckland at the time, and interestingly enough, unlike some areas in New Zealand where there was a lot of uh, male immigration, especially later on to places like the goldfields or where men were emigrating singly, it was probably about roughly equal numbers of men and women. There were probably about 700 houses in total in the settlement. The, one of the big things about Auckland was it wasn't a planned settlement like uh, uh, New Plymouth, Taranaki, Whanganui, Wellington, and then eventually Christchurch and Dunedin. It wasn't organised by an immigration company. It wasn't... They hadn't selected any immigrants. It was the kind of place that people washed up. So people washed up in the Barb Islands, any sorts of people, reprobates, uh, runaway sailors, drunks, ex-convicts. And Auckland was a bit like that too, rough and ready. If you turned up and you wanted to do some work and you wanted to... to, uh, to get on with your life without too much um, scrutiny, this is a good place to be. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty rough place with a very s- small upper echelon of, of the well-off people who have been sent here to administrate the colony now that this is officially the capital and a lot of working-class people. Plus the settlement is also being supported uh with food largely by Māori who were still farming and trading and fishing and actually providing food for the settlement because there there wasn't that much European farming set up and so literally they were quite reliant on Māori and Māori traders. The other thing about Auckland was that there were a lot of pubs, a lot of pubs. So in the year the murder occurred there was one public house for every 63 residents above the age of 21. So there were a lot of pubs. Alcohol is cheap. It's nasty. It's gin. It's you know, it's home brewed rum. It's just, it's horrible. But there's a lot of alcohol, a lot of drunkenness. So also in 1847, almost half the criminal cases brought before the new Supreme Court that was set up related to drunkenness offences. So that was the most common thing that people were were being prosecuted for. As I said, also over on the North Shore, basically a wilderness. So uh, the Chief Patuoni, Ngāpūi Chief, was living at, at Takapuna. Sort of in, when we say Takapuna, I mean sort of inside up in Shoal Bay, like where Barry's Point Road is. They had a, a kainga there. There were some fishing settlements, but by and large, the North Shore is also depopulated as well. This the view here is of, of the main wharf at the bottom of Queen Street, looking up here, rising up the hill. This picture is from 18, circa 1853. We know this also because this up here is uh, Partington's windmill that was built in 1850. So that was a major landmark for many, many years. So that was built a few years after the murder, but it's pretty early. So as you can see, there are, sort of, there are stores, there are shops, there are lots of, lots of pubs and dirty streets. I found this useful map through the Auckland City Library's special collections, which I have to say is a fantastic resource, obviously. So this shows us a little bit more about what, what downtown Auckland was like. We can see this is basically the extent of the settlement. This is probably about 1843, a little bit earlier. But here, here's our shoreline, which was what would eventually be built in to become... What has now become known again as Commercial Bay. I think people, when they built the Commercial Bay development downtown, people didn't really understand why it was called that, but this was literally the Commercial Bay that got filled in. Here's Point Britomart sticking out, and here's the fort on top of it. This hill was eventually quarried away, and now you go around the bottom of it, around the Beach Road, into what was then Official Bay, and the edge of Parnell. Main Street here is Shortland Crescent, curving up around the hill. This here is Four Street, which became Fort Street. It sort of has two names because it's the 4th Street, because it's on the foreshore, but also it led to the fort. So it's Four or Fort Street and Shortland Crescent, which is still basically where it is today. And then Queen Street, running up here almost as far as there's Victoria, ran a little bit further than that. Up on the hill we have the the Government House, which was built, as I said, from a kit set and was uh, quite unpopular, drafty and not fit for purpose. And down here we see in our list here the Royal Hotel. The Exchange Hotel, Governor Hobson's Hotel, the Victoria Hotel, Sir George Gipps' Hotel and the Bluebell Inn. So we just see some of the pubs that were there. Uh, one of our characters mentions drinking at the Bluebell at some point. So the other thing about Queen Street is that basically um, a uh, river ran down it, so the Waiharatu Stream ran right down Queen Street and is now under the ground. It was originally a stream, sort of became an open drain and then they built it over and called it the Ligar Canal, but that was a pretty noxious piece of water running down there. Oh, also of interest, which we'll come back to this, is here on this intersection of Queen and Victoria, basically where the, was the ANZ, it might not still be the ANZ, building here uh, was where the courthouse and the jail were. So we'll come back to that. Uh, here's, this is another view of Auckland in 18, 1844. So again we see the foreshore, Four Street, Shortland Crescent running up there, uh, the fort, the Government House. So this is the view of Government House, um, sitting up on top of the hill, out to sea, it's a random goat uh, again we look over to the north shore we see uh, Takaranga, Mount Victoria with the flagstaff on it the little hill here, the two little hills here that got quarried away, Mount Cambria, Mount Duda North Head, Manguaika and Rangatoto looming in the background so the first thing they did after they um, after the attacks is they held an inquest and the first thing they found when they had an inquest which they had where well, they held at a hotel because that was pretty much what they had, was that the the bodies of the three snows had been not just killed, they hadn't been shot, they hadn't been stabbed, they had been, uh, getting to the grisly part, mutilated with a tomahawk. And so um, this is why very much suspicion fell on Māori, the bodies had been not only killed but also cut about with a sword or some other sharp object. One of Mrs Snow's legs was missing. The child had very bad injuries to her legs. These people had been very badly hacked around. I think Lieutenant Snow himself had been tomahawked in the head. And so this was very... This very much had the hallmarks of a Maori attack. The reason that this wasn't just something that people's minds jumped to, it was quite a, a big fear. There had been a number of other attacks. In the previous years, as I said, in the, uh, 1844 and 1845, there had been attacks in Russell, which led to Russell being sacked and, and burned and all the Europeans being driven out of town in the start of the War of the North. But more recently, before this murder, there had been attacks on what they called out-settlers, so people living away from the main settlements. Up in the hut, so in the hut valley, as part of a, a land dispute and a boundary dispute, um, a guy called Gilfillan and his son, 13-year-old son, who were chopping down a tree, were found tomahawked to death. There was another attack outside of Whanganui where um, a whole family, the father escaped to go and get help, but the uh, mother and quite a few of the children were tomahawked to death. So there was a bit of this going on, and so the fact when this happened, the first reaction in Auckland and the reaction of the newspapers and the public was that Auckland is now under siege, these people have been attacked, which is quite significant because it meant the person that committed the murder had probably had this in mind. They probably thought, how can I divert suspicion away from myself, how can I yeah, basically point the crime away from me. I'll make it look like uh, there's been a Māori attack. So the first thrust, the first couple of months after the murders, the thrust was very much trying to pursue Māori, working with officials, working with Māori. So um, Māori in the Thames area and in Waikato were cooperative. um, There were sightings of various people. There were stories, and the the newspaper would excitedly report that this Māori people seen wearing European clothing and unusual hats, and there's a lot of pursuit, and eventually... Uh, Waikato chiefs found this man called Namoka and brought him to Auckland to be, interestingly enough, not to be arrested, not to be charged, but sort of for a kind of a hui, I guess. They had a um, a korero on the grounds at Government House. The the primary chiefs spoke. The the resident resident magistrate was there, but basically the chiefs spoke about the various pros and cons, whether this person had committed the murder. We've got a really great description, a guy called Godfrey Mundy. I'll show you one of his images uh, later on, he was a, a soldier, an Australian soldier, but also an artist, and he wrote quite a long description of his uh, trip to New Zealand. And He happened to be there on that day uh, and watched the whole Kororo take place, although he couldn't understand a lot of it. Also, interestingly enough, Te Raupraha, the great Ngati Toa chief, was also in residence. He was under kind of a house arrest, I guess, that after these disturbances in the hut, he'd been arrested. They'd had him on a ship, they'd brought him to Auckland. They bought him a little house in the Domain and the government said, you're going to stay there we can keep an eye on you. So he was there that day as well. So there was a big uh, korero and a hui and people talked about the, what might have happened. But in the end, Namoka was, was let go. Thomas Beckham, the resident magistrate, said there wasn't enough evidence that he was involved and so he was let go and is not, not heard from again. So basically two months after the murder, the police really didn't have any idea what was going on or who might have been responsible and had basically been on a wild goose chase for two months. So talking about who was investigating this murder, we think, when we think of murder, we think, oh, the police would be investigating. In fact, it was a a bit of an unusual situation at that time in terms of who actually did the investigating and the prosecuting. One of the super cool things about research in this book is I got to go down to archives and look at all the papers around the case, and there's quite a big file covering all the uh, police activity and jail activity at that time, and uh, to see the actual handwriting and, and signatures of some of these people who were involved was really special. Love this guy. This, this guy's called Thomas Rinrose Atkins. He used to write a little diarysis over his Y. He, I think he had quite a lot of pretensions of grandeur. He calls himself T. Rynrose Atkins, uh, Irishman. He also has this amazing... It's almost like he's writing on a ruler. It's just the most beautiful writing, rather than quite a loose copper plate. Tiny, tiny little writing. Again, there's no picture of him. I kind of imagine him being a very precise person, filling out his reports. Unfortunately, he and the other uh, person who was involved in investigating the crime, Thomas Beckham, the resident magistrate, did not get on and were constantly um, at war with each other, trying to undermine each other. There'd been a bit of a shift in the, in the policing and um, justice system. Not long before this happened, a new uh, armed police force had been established, which... Was actually leading more into being sort of a uh, rather than what we think of the police today. Maybe working in the community, prosecuting crimes. They were more sort of a um, a force of social control, especially um, as there were these concerns about Maori and that there would be an uprising. Auckland felt very at risk. It was sandwiched between the tribes in the north, who had already been at war with the government, and the Waikato, who were very numerous and powerful. And Aucklanders felt very, in particular, felt very at risk from this. So yes, there's a long-standing rivalry between uh, Beckham and Atkins. From what I can tell, they're both as bad as each other. Beckham uh, was quite badly behaved. He was the resident magistrate in the Bay of Islands and was having an affair with someone's wife, and they had to send him away from there. Atkins had a tendency, tendency to be drunk in public, so they really were pretty much as bad as each other. And there was, so there wasn't really an investigative force. This is very the very early days of detective work, even in the UK. the The first London detective division hadn't been established till the 1840s. There wasn't really a a way, a set way of investigating crimes, or, or a detective force, uh, so much. Although, interestingly enough, there's like a tantalising little glimpse, William White, who was one of the assistant commissioners of police in Auckland, left said in his memoir when he talks about this case that that there was a Māori officer called Charlie, Charlie Brown, Charles Brown, who um, sort of operated as a bit as a detective. And what they, how they did their detective work, was not in an overt manner like we might today by saying hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm a detective, but they sort of plant people in the pubs and listen and take notes and spy on people pretty much. And so he, the police kind of had an idea who might have been involved in the crime and they'd, they'd done a little bit of spying. But that was, that was the limit of their investigation, really. And, but also, as we'll find with the, um, with the trial, the, the, the bar for having to prove guilt was was pretty low also. But poor Atkins, having thought himself to be quite an important person and, and argued with Beckham for so long, then died of acute dysentery in 1849, which was uh, one of the fabulous books I found to research this. Is there's a, someone did this amazing project where they transcribed all the, uh, the first five, six, eight years of, of inquest records in Auckland, so you get to find out who died of what quite a lot of detail. So that's quite, I found that quite interesting. So, so basically the police, we get to Christmas, uh, the snows have been dead for two months, the, uh, the Maori angle has been pursued and, and nothing's come of it. The police are kind of at a loose end when a sudden twist of events occurs. Now, the interesting thing about what happens next is that if these people hadn't acted in this way, this crime would never have been solved. No one would ever have brought to justice. The, the people involved were smart, but obviously not smart enough because they start making mistakes. So we've got, we get to Christmas. We have the Christmas period on December the 28th. A former seaman called Thomas Burns attacks his common-law wife Margaret Reardon at her sister's house in Smiles Point, remember I said over to the to the uh, west of the city. He arrives at, his, at, her, at the house where she's living, he has a loud argument with her, he tries to kill her with a um, a long-handled razor, and then he tries to kill himself and he is apprehended. And this is the first we really hear of Burns. So Burns was a sailor who came to New Zealand on the buffalo. Now you might have heard of the uh, Buffalo Beach in Whitianga, where the buffalo ship eventually wrecked. Buffalo made quite a few voyages to New Zealand prior to the Treaty of Waitangi, um, bringing kauri spars, bringing out convicts. Um, and eventually she, yeah, she came to a sad end on a, a big uh, north-easterly storm on the Coromandel, got driven ashore. I think everyone survived except for one person, but... The ship was lost. Because the colony was getting set up at that point and these men were all these naval sailors were now stuck in New Zealand that had been on the buffalo, the government offered them jobs, and so several of those men took up jobs uh, working in New Zealand for the government in various guises, and some of them left government service, got paid out. So Burns found himself washed up in New Zealand, worked in a few jobs, bit of boat building, bit of building. He seems to have just been, in general, a bit of a waste of space. Um, A drunk, like many people in this story, been sacked from various jobs, he'd been working over, living on the North Shore, he'd been working as a stockman in Devonport, he'd been, take, he'd been kicked out of that job for stealing a calf and killing it, and so he was living in a little house um, on the edge of that uh, Shoal Bay waterfront with his common-law wife, had been living with his common-law wife, Margaret Reardon, uh, they had two children, uh, and he'd been living there, and then he'd, he'd, then he'd actually got away on a ship, and the ship I pictured here, this is actually an image by Mundy, who I mentioned before, the This is a lithograph taken off one of his sketches. Here is Auckland, sort of mounded up in romantic style. But this ship here, I think, is inflexible. So um, it was a navy ship, new sort of style, dual, uh, what do you call a hybrid, I suppose. So it had a steam paddle wheel, but also sails. So um, you could sail when the weather was good, and you could have your steam paddle wheel going much quicker, more efficient, early steamship. So Burns, uh, at the start of November, had signed on to inflexible. Uh, and taken a ship across to Sydney, the ship had gone across to Sydney to get some more uh, gold for the colony uh, and he'd just come back to Auckland at the start of December and started fighting with Margaret Reardon again because he discovered when she got back, when he got back that she'd moved out and moved on with his sister and he wasn't happy about it. Margaret Reardon's original maiden name was Margaret Lackey, uh, she was Irish uh, and was a free immigrant to Australia so she came out with some of her siblings who had various jobs in Sydney, uh, she had married an older man there, an ex-convict called Daniel Reardon, uh, and we don't know what happened to him, I think we think he had died, but anyway, she came across to, uh, oh no, he hadn't died at that point, sorry, he, she was still married to him, she was obviously not happy with him, she came to New Zealand where her sister Sophia was living with her second husband and hooked up with Burns and had a couple of children with him, and, but she was still married to Reardon at this point. When Burns was in Sydney he found out that Reardon had died and so when one of the arguments they had when he came back to New Zealand was, was over whether or not she would then marry him, which she wasn't keen on that idea. So after um, Burns came back and, and made this attack on Reardon, he came obviously to the attention of the police. Um, He was taken away and held in the jail and charged with cutting and wounding Margaret Reardon with intent to do her some grievous bodily harm. One of his arguments was that he had had a head injury and he wasn't in his right mind when he attacked her. Um, His sole defence at his trial was that he had this head injury that he got from falling over on a ship and that he didn't really remember what he was doing. However, he was found guilty of attacking Reardon. And another thing I found interesting, he was sentenced to transportation, which you kind of think, I understand that transportation... Uh, would be a punishment if you were in England, the idea of being sent across the seas for the term of your natural life, being sent to Diemen's Land. I think if you're in New Zealand and you're being sent to Tasmania, there's probably not a lot of difference. But nonetheless, I, I, didn't, I did not rhyme until I worked on this book that it, around 100 people were transported from New Zealand to Tasmania up until the early 1850s. As convicts, a lot of them were um, military deserters or people who'd committed military crimes, a lot of soldiers. A lot of Māori, there was a bit of political coercion going on. Māori um, who were causing trouble were charged and transported. And so this was going to be Burns's uh, fate. He was going to be sent to Tasmania, and not to return. However, then there was another twist of events. So, Burns has been charged. He's been sentenced to transportation. So basically, this is the part that's hard to understand about Burns because he'd basically been he'd heard his sentence. He was on his way. And Reardon knew this as well, Margaret Reardon knew this as well. But while he's sitting in jail waiting to be transported, Reardon goes to see him. And when she goes to see him, after she goes to see him, they both come out and say, they want to say who actually killed the snows. They've got information about the snow murders and they'd like to tell somebody about it. Which seems like a very odd thing to do in hindsight because if they hadn't said anything, that would have been the end of the story. However, he comes up with a story that Thomas Duda and William Oliver, who were the other two men who were living in the Devonport area at the time, had come to him in his little shack, and said, we want to go and rob Snow, he's come into some money, um, he's been given a payout by the Navy, let's go and rob him, and uh, and Burns had agreed to go and do that. Interesting enough about Duda and Oliver is that Burns knew them because they were also on the Buffalo, they were also sailors on the Buffalo, as I said, um, Duda was the signalman in Devonport, uh, working, living part way up uh, Mount Victoria and, and running the signal station, and um, And Oliver was a stockman running the stock. Remember, that's the job that Burns had been sacked from. And so he had a bit of a grudge with them. So he decided that they announced that. Both he and and said, yes, this is what happened. They came to the house. Uh, Burns said, I didn't know it was what was going to happen. Burns didn't know what was going to happen. Went along there and they got killed. But what was interesting about Burns' story here is that he has a lot of detail about the murders. Like, it's... It's like he was there, which I think the police would have been found very suspicious, especially seeing as they already had this intelligence that maybe uh, he was involved. As I said, police had their own suspicions, and so Duda and Oliver were brought in for questioning, but the people that actually got in trouble, uh, of course, were Burns and later Reardon. So at the June quarter sessions, the next time the court was in service, Burns gets charged with the murder of the Snows. Um, Interestingly enough, the charges of the murder of Robert Snow and not Hannah and or Mary. And so, again, the women have been consigned out of history. So he was being charged for the murder of Robert, Lieutenant Robert Snow. This here is a picture of the, the courthouse, which had this sort of grand portico outside, but it was very made of timber. It was also very drafty. Here's the jail, this kind of area, number of buildings, sort of, sort of a yard. Uh, this is Victoria Street rising up here. This is Queen Street. And here's the canal, the noxious stream sort of running through it. Outside there were stocks. Where people were, who would, especially people who were drunk, would be put in there to sober up, and so people could throw things at them and, and generally mock them while they sobered up. And then at various times there was also a gallows here, so the first hanging that occurred in New Zealand, the hanging actually happened on this site as well. So uh, the, the case was that Reardon was brought in to testify against uh, Burns. She turned against him. Uh, significantly, they were not married, and so she was able to testify against him. So if they'd been married, she would not legally have been able to testify against him, which was possibly the reason that Burns was very keen for them to get married when he came back from Australia. She told the court that, that Burns had confessed what had happened to her and that he said he would kill her if she told anybody, and that was her story, that that's why he'd come back at Christmas time and tried to kill her. He was afraid that she was going to tell. The the police and the justice system didn't have a strong case by today's standards. Just looking at it, you know, we'd never have uh, even gone to court today. The motive the the crown suggested was theft that um, Burns was motivated to steal this money. They had some witnesses who said that they'd seen him splashing a bit of cash around at the pub, but no money was ever found because suspicion never was wasn't turned to Burns initially. His house had never been searched. They never you know found any other evidence on him. The he had the opportunity because he was there on the North Shore, but there, no evidence that he was ever there. Obviously, there were no forensics. There are no other witnesses. The only weapon they have is a tomahawk that they found in Burns' toolbox, which they claimed may or may not have had blood on it. If you think Burns would be stupid enough to tomahawk someone to death and then keep the tomahawk in his own toolbox... You know, Burns obviously had his faults, but I, I suspect he probably, this probably wasn't the tomahawk involved. But they didn't find the bayonet that was supposed to be used or the sword. Nonetheless... Uh, Burns was found guilty after a trial that only lasted a day, day and a half and was sen- sentenced to hang I think uh, probably public, f- public sentiment public feeling, people wanted to feel safe they wanted to know that someone had done this murder it, it's highly likely that, that Burns was involved but whether or not the case had actually been proven in legal terms is, is debatable so Burns, they announced that Burns, instead of being hung at the prison, he would be hung on the site of the murders, and so they had quite a festive day in Auckland where they had a flotilla of boats, they got him, they took him from the jail, they marched him down Queen Street, um, they put him on, a, they took him around to Official Bay, they put him in a little boat, they rowed him across to Devonport while people sort of had a regatta around them. They got to Devonport where they'd erected the scaffold, um, people were selling oranges and, and souvenirs, it was quite a festive kind of, very much like what we think of Victorian London when there was a hanging, you know, it's the first time the colony had had a good hanging for a few years, and, and they hung him. And even at the end, he, he refused to confess himself and he blamed Reardon. He said, You know, she's lied about me. Um, she knows more than she's letting on. And, and he was hung. He was also buried, I think, yeah, no, I think he was also buried in Simon Street and his grave was also gone as well. The next thing that happened to Reardon, of course, is that she was then charged with perjury. So have, the police, having used her to testify against Burns, they then charged her with perjury for saying that Douda had done the murder. And so she was charged with perjury, and she was transported to Van Diemen's Land. And she's she's the only woman in New Zealand history to have been transported to Van Diemen's Land. And in fact, of all the people that came out of this, I think Reardon probably came out of it the best in a way. She she did her time, she reinvented herself, she remarried several times, and she lived to a ripe old age. Uh, And as far as we know, she was never involved with killing anyone else. So all of this raises a few questions. And one of the interesting things about working through this project is it really makes you wonder what what actually happened. You know, who really did it? Uh, And did Burns Act alone? From the evidence that I've seen, I think that I think Burns probably did commit the murder. I think he had a motive. I think he was a drunk, he was violent, he was petty. You know, he held these grudges. He thought that the snows had this money. But he was also smart, because if if he did commit the murder, he did obviously make a conscious decision, he or someone else involved in the murder, to make it look like Māori had made the attack to divert attention away from himself. I mean, he could have just gone down there and stabbed them the night and run off and probably still wouldn't have got caught. But he staged quite an elaborate decoy I, I think from what I've read that he didn't act alone. I suspect that Reardon not only knew about the crime but was probably also there, mainly because I think that from the extent of the injuries and, and um, the fact that three people have been killed, three people have been tomahawked, I think it wasn't possible for him to go around and do each person separately. I think there were probably two people there. There were two weapons. There was a bayonet. There was, a, there was this tomahawk injuries. I can't imagine that Reardon would have left her two young children alone in bed at night to go to Devonport to kill three people over a small amount of money. But these were desperate people and they were um, alcoholics and they um, possibly thought they could get away with it. It's really hard to know. There's a lot of portrayal of, of um, Reardon uh, also as a victim of Burns, that, she was, um, that he was violent towards her, um, that she was either coerced in being involved or certainly you know, he had no, no qualms about throwing her under the bus when it became convenient for him. And there's a play that Michelin Forster wrote called Not, not My Sister. Not, yeah, Not My Sister. I think it's called, that, that portrays her as, a, as a, a young woman, a naive young woman who gets caught up in this situation, but I suspect the truth uh, lies somewhere in between. So Burns may have been a smart guy, but as I said, he was obviously uh, drunk. He may also have seriously suffered from these head injuries because he made two really major mistakes. I mean, he came back from being on Inflexible. He could have got on Inflexible, gone to Sydney, got off the ship in Sydney, reinvented himself, never been seen again. Maybe he came back for his children, maybe he came back for Reardon, but certainly if he actually wanted to get away with murder, he could have done so. And then the second mistake that he and Reardon made were trying to put the blame on Duda, because in doing so, they revealed that they knew so much more about the murder. When no one was, when he was arrested for attacking Reardon, no one had any idea he was involved outwardly anyway, and the police had, certainly had no proof, but once he started telling these stories, it became pretty obvious that he was involved. So he had the motives he's greedy, he's got this head injury, he's drunk, he's just generally a sort of general general bad dude he's not a good guy Um, but even so escalation to such a violent murder seems quite extreme and I think that still remains unexplained So what does the story tell us? It tells us about, as I said, as I've mentioned several times this idea that colonial society in Auckland at this time was was pretty rough and despite the fact that the Treaty of Waitangi had been signed we were under British law the police force were fairly um, ineffective the justice system was pretty green and rusty you know you could get away with you could get away with murder there's a lot of drunkenness there's a high incidence of crime relating to it. there's a lot of domestic violence reading through those um, inquests, but also reading through the newspapers at the time. there were a lot of cases of women being killed by their partners, children being killed by drunken men. There was a lot of that going on, so it tells us that this was a very raw frontier society despite the the, the picture that we're sometimes portrayed. It tells us about gender relations. it tells us about Margaret Redden who you know was basically thrown under the bus not only by by Burns, but also by the justice system. She was portrayed as a woman of poor character. They were unmarried. She'd lived with him. You know, she lied. You know, she was she was very much taken to pieces by the press for being a person of bad character. It tells us about women being men's property, that the idea that if they were married she couldn't testify against them. They were part of the same legal entity. You know, it tells us about how women were, you know, economically enthralled to men. You know, it was very difficult for women to make a living by themselves, that so she had to stay with Burns despite the fact he was a bad person. It tells us about the justice system and the development of that justice system and, and the idea that justice needed to be seen to be done in this new colony, that it needed to be made very clear that you could not commit crimes and get away with them. Um, it also needed to show that Pākehā, as well as Māori, would be punished. The only previous person to be hung in New Zealand was Māori, um, Makatu Wharei Tautera, um who had killed three Pākehā in the Bay of Islands. In 1842, he was the first person to be hung, so they needed to show that this application of justice was, um, was broad. And it tells us about, doing research around this tells us a lot about the men in power at the time. So it tells us about the lawyers, the doctors, the magistrates, people's names occur here and there, the people who were called for the juries. There was sort of a cabal, a very small cabal of powerful men who basically were running the, the colony and affecting the lives of, of the working class. It sheds light on those issues of of, uh, race relations and what was going on with Māori, that that the treaty had been signed but there was already some massive cracks appearing in it that had the war in the north. One of the debates around the time when the murder was first discovered was Earl Grey, whose father the team was named after, had issued a decree that, that Māori land that was uncultivated would be considered wasteland and was therefore the property of the government. The legislators in New Zealand were reluctant to enact that because they knew what trouble it would cause but there was a lot of uh, talk swirling around that this would happen, and obviously, eventually, uh, you know, bad land dealings, land confiscation, all these sorts of things led to uh, war in the 1860s and onwards. And this is sort of the we still see a lot of that, we see the start of that swirling around at this time. And it really challenges this idea that our ancestors came out here and lived these clean and wholesome lives. I know my ancestors came out to Nelson uh, in the 1840s, and we like to think of them as being sort of upright citizens. In fact, um, my, the, my ancestors that came to Nelson were the, were the servants of the surveyor and his wife. And from all reports, the, my ancestor William Lotter just wasn't a very nice person. He used to argue with everybody and he got sacked. And then we made a bakery and argued with the people there and they set up a ferry. And you know, the people, you know, our ancestors are not, are not perfect and they were real people and they had, uh, you know, their own personalities and concerns and problems. and I, I really want to bring to life this idea that you know they were living in filthy conditions on the other side of the world, constantly at risk of their lives, basically, and that that was the reality. So the next... When I say there, what next? What happened next? Uh, I mean, the story slid into obscurity. It comes up a couple of times in the newspapers uh, in the 18... 18- Seventies, I think, someone's digging a hole in Devonport and they find some bones and there's a big furor in the, in the papers about the fact had they found the bodies of the snows and, and that the whole is brought back to light. In fact, it was a, a Maori burial. And uh, then they basically slip into obscurity while the colony grew and prospered and then slipped into war and, uh, and people had other things on their minds. I've absolutely loved doing the research on this project. It's been so fascinating and I've gone down very many rabbit holes I had a very enjoyable couple of days at Archives New Zealand, as I said, looking at the actual documents relating to the crime, uh, Burns' confessions, the records of the jail, who was in the jail at the time. Interestingly enough, um, that first painting I showed you is by a guy called Joseph Jenner Merritt, who was a sort of colonial artist. At the beginning phase, when I think when Margaret Reid is first incarcerated, he's in the jail for being drunk. So you know. There's So much goes just from reading those records. has been fascinating. Drawing on the resources of Auckland Libraries also and those images as well. Papers Past, which is just a phenomenal resource. I don't, you know, this, The amount of time you'd have to spend actually finding physical newspapers and flicking through them in the past, and I know this from doing research in the past, or in microfilm, has just been uh, revolutionised by Papers Past, where you can just find so much stuff and, as I said, go down quite a few um, rabbit holes. Image research, and then also... Um, I've been reading a fascinating book called The Invention of Murder uh, by a woman called Judith Flanders, which is about the rise of the concept of murder and detection and crime fiction and the public fascination with murder and death. The Victorians were obsessed with death in its many forms, but certainly during the middle of the um, 1800s, they became obsessed with murders and it became sort of really part of the popular culture, So, which has led us to this obsession with true crime today. So it's been fascinating.
1: Thanks for listening to today's Heritage Talk. You can book to attend one of our upcoming talks by heading to our website at www.aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and searching for events. Some of our previous talks can be found on our channels on YouTube and SoundCloud and you can discover even more about our heritage and research collections by clicking on the Kura shortcut in our heritage menu on our homepage. Until next time, Mate wa.